Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Privileged to be your host, this is Dan Moore. This episode is sponsored by Global Educational Concepts. Global Educational Concepts is a designated sponsor of the U.S. Department of State's cultural exchange programs. They fully support and believe in the public diplomacy opportunities their exchange programs offer participants, host families, and host employers. Global Educational Concepts seeks to provide the best service and support possible to the young people who participate in their programs while adhering to government regulations. Their program participants can be found living, working, and training all across the U.S. Visit GECExchanges.com for more information on global educational concepts. Today on the Action Catalyst, we have a very special guest. They're all special. In this case, because this individual spent his entire career representing our country internationally in his work with the Department of State. Rick Ruth recently retired from his role. He was the acting principal deputy assistant secretary for the Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. I know that's a mouthful, but to put it into perspective, more than 70,000 people are employed in the Department of State. There are 19 assistant secretaries in the various areas, including two in the Educational and Cultural Affairs Group. So to be the principal deputy assistant secretary is like being the chief communications officer, chief operating officer, chief conscience officer of a very large division of a multinational company. Rick got there in an unusual path. He was actually teaching Russian language in Arizona when an opportunity that he'll share with us in the interview came about that led to a complete change in his career and what a difference that has made, not just for him, but helping our world. He was very involved in public affairs in communicating American values, American culture to people overseas and in turn, helping to understand their points of view and all that they've done. His bio is long and impressive. Uh, he's going to share an incident of his involvement after 9-11 and the horrible tragedy that has ensued and trying hard to bring a positive aspect in the, or response to that to help prevent those types of things from happening before. He established the first global alumni network among cultural affairs exchange folks. Uh, cultural heritage is a key part of foreign policy. He was very involved in measuring the impact of exchange programs, the first high school exchange program for people from the Arab and Muslim worlds, and did historic reforms in the regulation of private sector exchanges. He recently retired. He's received numerous awards over the course of his career, a couple of which I'll mention, the Presidential Rank Award for Meritorious Service, the Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Public Diplomacy, which is awarded by the U.S. Department of State and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, the Lois Roth Foundation's Illich Richmond Award for Contribution to Cultural Diplomacy, and he won the Alumnus of the Year Award from the College of Humanities at the University of Arizona. Enjoying a fruitful and positive retirement now, let's join in welcoming Rick Ruth. Rick Ruth, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you very much, Dan. Appreciate it. It's amazing to see you after about a year. The last time we spent time together, we were in a little community called Narva mm -hmm. on the border between Estonia and Russia. 
and did a joint presentation there, helping to the young students that we were with to understand more about diplomacy, to more about the experience of what the U.S. is about. It's brilliant, brilliant outreach. And here you are on a beautiful day in Northern Virginia, enjoying the first year of your retirement. Indeed, it is a great pleasure to be retired, but I'm glad that we're still in touch with each other and still talking about topics of importance. Well, I'm glad we are as well. You've had such an amazing career, Rick, and it's been a career of impact representing the United States abroad, helping people understand much more about our country in ways that only a person steeped in cultural awareness could actually do. But I'm really curious how you how you got started and, and some of the major twists and turns in, in your career. I know our listeners would love to hear that story. If you could maybe share some of the most important pivots that that led you into this role that you've had for so many years with such distinction, and that would be fascinating. Well, thank you. I'm a great believer, Dan, in serendipity. Uh, and without uh, going too far in that uh, obscure direction, serendipity actually comes from the Arabian Nights. And it talks about three princes of the serendip, which was a actually the, the old name of Sri Lanka. And their gift in the world was that they were able to recognize the value of the unexpected. They, were, they would set off on a caravan for one thing and come across something else and realize it was far more valuable to them than what they had originally been looking for. And my life has been like that as well. Uh, I was very happy teaching Russian uh, at the University of Arizona. And then one day I was walking down the main corridor in the Modern Languages building and there was this beautiful poster on the wall, a new one, pictures of St. Basil's Cathedral in Red Square. And it said in Russian, travel to Russia and get paid for it. Now, as a starving young, you know, sort of grad student, this was magical. Uh, and I had never heard of the organization in the federal government that it said to contact, but it was about, as it turned out, a traveling exhibit program in the former Soviet Union. This was back in Cold War days in the 1970s. And I was able to travel to the former Soviet Union to different cities, on an exhibit about American life and Russian visitors lined up by the hundreds and the thousands to come into the exhibit every day because America was, of course, the greatest country either as their enemy or as their competitor or as their inspiration, depending on who the individual was. They would line up in the middle of the night in winter to come in and have an opportunity to talk to a real American in Russian about everything they wanted to know about the United States. And what that told me was, it's all about people. Technology matters, of course, and technology changes over time, and all that's very important. The technology we're using right now is very impressive. But when you get right down to it, it's not about the technology. It's about the person who communicates and the person who receives. And that's what I learned, and that's what I realized I wanted to do with the rest of my career. Wow. Now, how, how long was that initial foray there? And then how did that lead into a decision to really join the department full uh, that time? It was nine months, went to three different cities uh, in the Soviet Union, Moscow, Baku and Tashkent. Uh, and it was during that trip, then there was a sequence of serendipitous events because I, for the first time in my life, encountered what to me was a hitherto unknown creature, and that is the foreign service officer. Uh, <laughs> and and you know, they traveled around. I love to travel. They made better money than I did teaching Russian in Southern Arizona. I like money. Uh, and so I joined the Foreign Service and that led to being able to travel around the world and 
get involved in the kinds of exchanges that you and I talked about when we were in Norva back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And over the time that you have been involved with the Foreign Service, so many things happened internationally with, with our country, and you've been involved in many of them, mitigating some of the damaging impacts, building bridges after horrible things. I wonder if we could zero in on one in specific, and that was something that happened nearly 20 years ago, and that was the attacks on 9-11, and your response and, and your involvement after that, because I think it's very telling about the importance of, of what you've achieved to help so many people. Oh, thank you, Dan. Yes, uh, 9-11, of course, is a day that's uh, in all our memories very vividly and keenly. We all know one of those events where we know where we were, we know how we felt. I was able to see the smoke rising from the Pentagon from my office in the State Department. Uh, It was clear that something was terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, And as, as the days went by and I was speaking with the other people in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, it was clear that while all of the American government and in fact all of American society and every individual was grappling with how to respond, how to react to this terrible attack, there was a special responsibility, if you will, a special burden even on the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs because our mantra, if you will, is mutual understanding. And of all the things that the 9-11 attack was, it was also a catastrophic affront to the notion of mutual understanding around the world. And we felt obliged to do something that was significant, that was lasting, that would be meaningful. So the idea that I had was that we create the U.S. government's first ever international exchange program for Arab and Muslim high school students, where they would come to the United States, they would live with an American family for an entire year, attend an American high school for a year in communities all across the United States. Uh, We proposed that to Congress. Uh, They supported it. It's now the Kennedy Luger Youth Exchange and Study Program, short, the YES program. Uh, And we've had more than 10,000 of these young men and women around the United States now for over a decade. And that's the kind of, I think it's turned out the way we hoped it would when we first conceived of it. I'll expand on that for us a little bit, if you don't mind, Rick. In other words, bringing high school students over to spend a year in American schools. Some people might say, oh my gosh, you're planting sleeper cells all through America. But you know that that's not what it's about. Um, what were some of the outcomes and, and commentary that you received after that from both the participants and maybe their host families here on this side on the goal of mutual understanding? These kinds of programs are, and not to be overly dramatic, but they are transformational. And they're not transformational only for the exchange student coming to the United States, but for their host families and everyone they meet. Let me give you one example. There was a young woman, young Arab Muslim woman, who was in a small town in Kansas, very small town, population of about 2,000. Uh, and there was a Christian church there that was in a historic old building, but it was falling apart. And the congregation didn't have the money to rebuild it. So they were just going to let it go and move into a new building, much to their sorrow and regret, because they were very attached to the original church building. This young woman taught her parents how to make her native Arab dishes. They had a series of fundraising dinners surrounding uh, those uh, native dishes, and they were able to raise enough money to save and restore the Christian church. Now, it just doesn't get better than that. that. (laughs) No, it doesn't get better than that. 
breaking down barriers, I'm sure on both sides, uh, you know, the people that come to this country with pre preconceived notions about what Americans are all about, mostly hyped by the press. And then people in our country that have suspicions and doubts about people from Arab and Muslim based countries, really fascinating. We have found that uh, in any kind of poisoned information environment or communication environment, the single best antidote is human authenticity. If you bring human beings together on a level of mutual respect and understanding, they will work things out. Mm -hmm. Throughout all of this, Rick, I've noticed you keep almost a preternatural calm, I guess I would put it, somehow a, a sense of balance and perspective. How do you keep from getting swept away in the turbulence of incredible events and particularly the hype that accompanies them? What's some tips you could pass on to all of us? I think that uh, for me, the most important thing is no matter how difficult the situation may be, and that may be a family situation, a medical situation, that may be an international situation, is there is always something that can be done. It may at the moment seem small, it may seem modest, it may even seem laughably modest uh, compared to the size of the challenge, but there's never any reason to despair uh, because you can make positive steps forward, however incremental. And for example, I believe, as you, you probably have guessed, that the, the basis for all human relationships should always be respect. If you work on the, op, on the level of respect with your interlocutor, with your friends, with your colleagues, whoever you're dealing with, you can make progress. And sometimes that first step that I'm talking about that you can make in a dark hour is to let the people you're dealing with know that you do respect them, that you will work with them as professional, good, decent human beings. And as soon as you take that first step, you put yourself on a patch of solid ground. And once you have one patch of solid ground to stand on, you find that you can then start to branch out and create more opportunities for forward progress. And you start to build a momentum. You've done something. Other people have done something engaged with you because it's all mutual. And that starts to build. So no matter, no matter how dire the situation seems, if you just start actively doing something based on respect for other human beings, you're going to make you're going to make progress. And I can see that that's how you treat people. Having traveled with you and seen your interactions with people in various cultures, I know that. But is it dangerous to make an assumption that another person might also have that human respect? Do we, do we put ourselves out there on a limb if we try to offer respect and think they may take advantage of us for that? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely. You have to be sober about these things. Uh, we know there is evil in the world. Uh, human history tells us that. Uh, and but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be our initial default. It doesn't mean that isn't the way we should begin. If you discover that someone does not reciprocate or return uh, your engagement in an honest, straightforward way, that's information that's important. You will find other people who will. Uh, most people, I mean, if you, have, if you work with a large enough pool of people, as we were fortunate to do in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, where we work with thousands of people every year, you will find good people everywhere and good people will find you. But of course, you have to be sober and realistic that there are, there are bad actors in the world. Uh, and part of what I like about exchanges is 
they don't just affect one single individual, just that young woman who came to the small town in, you know, in the Midwestern United States, but it's everybody in that town. And then it's everybody back in her hometown. So when they come from their own country, they're an ambassador from their country. They're an ambassador from Russia. They're an ambassador from Angola to the United States. But once they go home, Suddenly, they're an ambassador from the United States to their own community because everyone asks them. Everybody wants to know. Friends, relatives, neighbors, teammates, school uh, colleagues. What was it like in America? Who did you see? How did they treat you? Are they decent like, like we are? One of the things that we have discovered from our surveys of exchange participants is that even today, the number one source of information about the United States for young people around the world is movies and television. And we know what the image of the United States is in movies and television. It's not really the reality. And so uh, we want to get them here and we want them to then go back home and tell the world who we really are. Mm -hmm. And that face-to-face encounter, that living with people is absolutely the best way to do that. Absolutely. You know, for, for many years, we would host exchange students in our home. And I remember the first time we had a young man from France living with us. And after two weeks, he called home to his parents and he says, I don't know what kind of Americans these are. And his, <laughs> mo- his, his, his mother said, why? He said, I've been here for two weeks and we have never yet been to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, yeah, what kind of American are you, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, always an eye opener when those things happen. Yeah, we had uh, a, a Bulgarian journalist come here who said at, at the end of his uh, several week visit, he said, I always thought I'd be fine and I'd be safe in the United States, but I always thought I would hear gunfire. Hmm. I, you know, because I was he was going to he was in big cities in New York, Washington, Los Angeles. He said I was just somehow sure because I watched television and movies about America all the time that at some point I would hear gunfire. Uh, and you know, uh, the the students you talk about, McDonald's, gunfire across the board, people around the world simply don't know what Americans are like, and it's better that we show them. Mm-hmm. And better whenever we can to not be the ugly American mm-hmm. and uh, live up to the stereotypes. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder, Rick, if we could talk for a second about, about transitions, because you have been through several changes of the guard in different presidential administrations, different secretaries of state. Um, when somebody is not the captain of the ship, and they know that suddenly it's taking a different direction. What are some uh, some good coping strategies or attitudes to take on in a situation like that? Because it's not just in government, but it's also in businesses. It's in not-for-profits. There's a change in leadership, a change in direction. And those of us that are doing our best to be part of the solution might wonder what to do. Any Any sort of thoughts on that subject? Well, yes, I think uh, it's pretty much along the lines that you were just indicating. You have to be true to yourself Uh, in life and particularly in government and in business and so forth. We all know because we're not children. We know we're not going to get everything we want, nor do we even expect that we should. Uh, We're not the person we want to be our boss. It's not always going to be the right person. Every decision that supervisor or boss or leader makes is not going to be the one that we personally would wish for. And we understand that. Uh, But two things that we can always stay constant on. One is, if you're the 
person looking up to a supervisor or a new uh, person who's in charge, you owe them your honest opinion. You owe them your honest self because there's two things that can happen. Either the this person will make the decision you want or they won't. But if you have somehow distorted your own personality, if you have uh, not spoken honestly, if you have hidden your feelings about something and sort of distorted your own personality, then you can have a lose-lose situation. Mm-hmm. Boss doesn't make the decision you want, and you weren't even honest with yourself or with your boss about the situation. But if you're true to yourself, obviously polite and professional, but true to yourself and your own feelings, you can never have a lose-lose. The boss may make the decision that you don't want, but you you will have been honest and true to yourself, and you always can hold your head high. So that's number one. Uh, and I've forgotten what number two was. <laughs> I was going to edit that out. Well, I think what's great is that self-awareness, knowing who I am, what my values are, what I stand for, can is the anchor, really. And that can help us through the storms and turbulence of a changing of the guard. Absolutely. I and I just thought powerful. of the second thing, yes. Okay. And that is, if you happen to be the person who's in the supervisory or leadership position, again, you can't promise the people who work for you and look to you that you will always make the decision that they want. It's impossible because the people who work for you in any given situation will want multiple different things. You can't satisfy every single one of them. But what any leader can guarantee, and I think should always guarantee, is that the process of arriving at the decision will be an open, fair, honest process, and every voice will be heard. And by and large, if people think the process is fair, and that they've had a chance to speak their minds, then they will support the decision when you make it. Mm-hmm. Which is actually the reason that we have a jury system, that if 12 individuals mm-hmm. consider something and arrive at a decision, then you know that it's going to be a better decision than a single person reaching it. Absolutely. So pulling that out is, is important. Yeah, well said. Good. Uh, in terms of, I guess, self, uh, self-leadership, self-management, Rick, there's no sense that I have that you ever flattened out in your career. In other words, you're a member of the senior executive service. You had a certain amount of tenure. You had security. You had respect. Some people would coast in a situation like that. You you have by nature not the person who would coast. What what was it that you think that kept you from flattening out and, and just kind of being complacent? Well, part of it is I was fortunate to be in a line of work that I simply loved. It suited me. Uh, I enjoyed it. It inspired me. The stories like the one I told you about the young woman in the church, uh, how can you not be enthusiastic? How can you not be inspired when you encounter day in and day out these fresh young faces or wise uh, old faces uh, from all around the world who are willing to engage with our country uh, on all these issues of common concern? whether it's the rights uh, of young people and women and girls in a country, whether it's uh, climate change, whether it's transnational crime, whether it's the importance of education, doesn't matter what the issue is. You find that all around the world, people fundamentally want the same things and are willing to work with anybody who treats them with respect and shares those values. And there's always a new challenge because no human being or no group of human beings is ever perfect. We know that. We all fall short of the mark set by our faith or by our values. And so there's always the striving. There's always the struggle. 
you always want to keep going towards the next thing to try and make the world as, as good a place as you can. Uh, and I also have to say that because I was in a line of work that I enjoyed, I had colleagues, I had friends who shared those fundamental values and they inspired me in return. If I was ever down for a moment, you can be sure that someone who had the office next to me or down the hall would be just have just the right antidote to cheer me back up again. Mm-hmm. Well, the people we surround ourselves with are absolutely so important. And finding those colleagues that are like-minded, that share the mission, yep. that is so sustaining. And I can I totally agree with you on that. And also the idea of trying to be in a career where there's no finish line, because it's, it's, it's a striving for something that we may never fully achieve. Peace on earth, communications among people, understanding among various cultures, yeah, that's aspirational. And yes. therefore, may never be reached. But the aspiration is what strives and causes us to keep going. I guess Robert Browning put it best when he said, a person's reach should exceed their grasp. Or what's a heaven for? That's right. And, you know, that is one of the things that is essential about representing the United States all around the world. There is, I mean, every country and every society is complex. But not every society occupies the place in the world, politically, socially, culturally, economically, militarily, that the United States does. Not every country, not every people has to account for themselves the way the United States must account for itself, because we owe the world. Um, In fact, it says at the Declaration of Independence, we owe a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, which is the best definition of public diplomacy that I've ever come across. Not surprising, it came from the pen of Thomas Jefferson. We do owe the world an accounting because of our predominant place in the world. And when we betray our values or when our values seem to be contradictory, it, it is a bur- we are required to explain to the world you know, exactly what we're up to, why we do what we do, what are the values behind our actions. Uh, and because we as a society fall short of the mark in many areas, as every society does, we have to point out that it's exactly what you describe. It's the fact that in America, we never give up on the struggle. We never give up on the aspiration to make ourselves and our society better. Mm-hmm. Something about a more perfect union. It doesn't say anything Indeed. about perfect union. Indeed. That's amazing. Um, Ricky, you've also been a mentor. You've been an encourager. You've been a developer of people. I can just imagine somebody in their mid-20s, freshly minted with a degree in something joining the state department and you encounter them and meet them, work with them. You've worked with mid-career people. You've met with later career people and been their mentor and their encourager. What would you share with our listeners who right now have looked at the hand that they're currently been dealt and there's not a single face card, let alone an ace. They are at a brick wall and not sure what to do next. What, what general encouragements might you offer to somebody that's just not sure they can get through it? I think it goes back to uh, something you uh, referred to just a few minutes ago, Dan, and that is you have to know who you are. Uh, it's, a, it's a well-known saying that you really can't be something for somebody else until you're something for yourself. And a lot of people haven't spent the time examining or with the introspection necessary to decide who they are. Or in many cases, they know what they like and they know who they are. But for some reason, because of family pressure or societal pressure, they think they have to do something else. Uh, They have to be not who they really are and not do what they really enjoy. 
But the first thing is to find out who you are uh, and then go with that. And again, once you have an idea of who you are and what you really like, do any small thing. Start gathering information about opportunities. Think of yourself not as a person who's stuck in a particular position, but a person who, well, I'm going to start gathering information or looking into other possibilities. Just the sheer act of saying in your own mind, I am now open to change. I am going to start looking at other information. I'm going to start gathering data. That starts to put you in the driver's seat. You start to pick up a little momentum and you feel like you're not a victim of outside forces, but you're the agent who can start making some change. And what impresses me is how even the smallest step, sometimes just a mental psychological step forward in that sense, where you feel like you're providing the momentum and the drive can start to lead to all manner of other consequences that are beneficial to you. Hmm. I love that term momentum. Uh, I've got a colleague that says motivation is a myth, but momentum is real. (laughs) 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 Mr. Matt Ross. Yeah, uh, that's exciting. Rick, time with you goes so quickly. Oh, my gosh. We could spend hours. And and I hope. And just a question. Are you writing a memoir? You know, I actually am. I started just about a month ago when the days started to get short and the opportunities for hiking a lot start to dwindle down a bit as winter comes on. And I decided that uh, one of the things I should undertake on these shorter, darker days is start to write whatever you want to call them, memoirs. Yes. Good, good. I'm so glad that you're doing that because it's it's important, not just for yourself and the defragging of your own brain as you go through the life, but it's important for the legacy, that the sharing, that things will help develop others in your stead, which Thank is you. wonderful to hear that. And so retirement seems to be suiting you well. Enjoying it? You know, uh, it may sound odd to say, but I think I actually nailed retirement. <laughs> I think I retired at the right time for the right reasons in the right way. And I'm delighted to be able to say that. Well, I'm glad because you had no experience in being retired. So it's good you that you've made it work. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> newbie sometimes. That's right. Thank you, Rick Ruth. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.